morning, everybody. Uh, so we are in, we're going to be in two primary passages this morning, if you want to turn there, Luke 13 and then Genesis 18. Um, and, and this is, so, you know, we're going through Jesus's life chronologically, and I got to this passage, uh, and I'm reading it, I'm praying, I've told you, you know, anytime I open the Bible, the prayer is going to be, God, let me, you know, let me understand from you, show me what you want me to see in this passage, help me understand. And he kept drawing my attention to one detail in this passage in Luke. Um, so I want you to listen for, there will be a switch in how Jesus is referenced in these verses in Luke. He's referenced by the name of Jesus and with pronouns he and him. And then there's a switch, and it only happens one time. And so listen for that, and that's really what we're going to, because as I started unpacking this, right, I've told you I, I processed through questions, and so I started asking, okay, God, why is this switch there? and really started diving into it and just came away with, um, this was just a really profoundly humbling week in preparing for this and, and looking at who the person of Jesus is. And I want you to be thinking about as we listen to this, when you hear Lord, what do you think of? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So this is Luke 13, starting in verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bound on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Please join me in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity now to engage with it. We thank you that this is a living word, sharper than any double-edged sword. And so God, now this morning, please use your living word, sharper than a sword, to pierce through to our heart, to cut through marrow to the bone, to do what it does, to convict and to teach and to instruct. We thank you that your word is profitable for all things. And so, Lord, that's what we want to happen this morning. We want you to teach us. We want you to open our eyes. We want you to open our hearts. We want you to teach us more of who you are so that we can know you deeper and we can pursue you more, that we may love you better, that we may serve you better as we seek to be molded to look like Jesus. We thank you for your word and we thank you for this time. May it be pleasing to you. May it be from you. May it be for you. May this be a continuation of our worship of who you are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I said, right, there's the switch. You guys catch it? He, him, he, him. Then the Lord replied. And, and I kept going back to that. I'm like, okay, what, what's going on? Why are we changing like this? I've said this numerous times. Every detail in Scripture is important. Every detail in Scripture is there for a reason. So this detail, this switch, there's got to be some significance to this. God doesn't do things accidentally or without intention. 
And so I, you know, I asked the question, okay, what word does, does Luke use there? Inspired by the Holy Spirit as he recorded this gospel, what word does Luke use? And he uses a word, kyrios. It's translated as Lord. And I'm like, okay, so kyrios. So how is he using kyrios? Is it, is it used as a title? Right when you say the Lord, the Lord of something, is, is Luke referring to Jesus by a title here? Or is he referring to Jesus by the name Lord here? What, how is Kyrios being used? Why this specific word in this instance? And then I started thinking, okay, well, how is Lord used in the rest of the Bible? And I started going through the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, do you see Lord used as a name? Yes. Do you also see Lord used as a title? Yes. And so, okay, what, what instance is being used here? I want to understand this. So then I started looking at the Old Testament. I started looking at Scripture as a whole. How does Scripture use the word Lord? What does Lord mean? Because if I'm being honest with myself, I think it's a word that, and some of us were talking this morning, and this is where, you know, that phrase, lost in translation, it, it, we have that phrase for a reason. Because as great as the English language is, there's not as much depth and nuance to the English language as to some of these languages from previous times. There's a lot that's in Hebrew and Greek that we just don't have in the English language. And I think Lord has kind of, at least for me, if I'm being honest with myself, and maybe you're like me, that there are times where I don't really think, you know, I just use Lord, but I don't stop to think about, okay, what am I saying when I say Lord? When I pray and I say, Lord, please, Lord, you are, when I use Lord, do I understand really what I'm saying? Or has it just kind of become a synonym that, you know, is interchangeable? So I started looking at what does Scripture say about Lord? And it led me back to Genesis 18. And so here's where we'll go to Genesis 18, and this is 1 through 3. Genesis 18. And read along, really read along in your Bibles with this. If, if, if you like to listen, I encourage you to pull out your Bible, open up your app, because I want you to look at the words. Lord is going to appear twice. And I want you to see if you catch the difference, and, and hopefully your translation has it. Um, I will say it this way. If your translation doesn't have one Lord in all capital letters and another Lord with just a capital L, find a new translation. Because that distinction is very important, and we're going to look at that. But so as we read through Genesis 18, 1 through 3, And the Lord, all capital, and the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes, and behold, and behold, all three, or three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, just a capital L, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So what's going on? What's going on here? Why do we have an all-capital Lord and then a Lord with just a capital L? Again, is this detail significant? The answer is yes. And see, in the Bible, when you see the all-capital Lord, it's translating what's referred to as the tetragrammaton, Yahweh, the proper name of God. Genesis 4.26. Yahweh, it doesn't appear in Genesis for the first time in chapter 4. Yahweh appears back in chapter 2. But when you look at Genesis 4.26, Yahweh is presented to be the proper name of God. And it was so revered by the Israelites that they wouldn't even write it out fully. They just wrote it out with the YHW or, you know, their corresponding letters. And so when Scripture has Lord in all capital letters, this is a translation of Yahweh the proper name of God. And so in Genesis 18, it says, then Yahweh, 
appeared to Abraham. But he looks up, and he beholds three men. And then he responds, and he says, O Lord. And he says, O Lord, with, a lo with just an uppercase L. And see this, when you see Lord with just an uppercase L translated, this is a translation of Adonai, or Adonai. A-I or A-Y, same word, same version. But so there's a very real difference in all uppercase Lord and Lord with just an uppercase L. And so now it's translating Adonai. So Yahweh appears to Abraham and Abraham replies by saying, Oh, Adonai. And Adonai is a plural form of Adon, which was a political title in that language. But here's the interesting thing. That's not how you would normally pluralize this word Lord. It's a political title that appears in 1 Samuel 29, just one example of Adon appearing in the scripture, not referring to God. And it could be pluralized. You could have multiple political title lords. But Adonai is not the normal translation of the pluralized lords. There's something different about it. It uses a kamatz instead of a patach. And those are two vowels in the Hebrew language that were used to modify words. And again, this is significant. I know this is a lot of, this is, this is some scholarly stuff, but I'm telling you guys, right, this is accessible to us, and this is significant. And so it's like, okay, so now I'm reading through, and still that question is in the back of my mind. Luke used Kyrios. The Holy Spirit led Luke to use Kyrios. Why is he using Kyrios? Lord, okay, where does Kyrios come from? Okay, let's go back to the Old Testament. So we have Lord could be Yahweh, or Lord could be Adonai. But wait a minute, Adonai, that's not how you normally pluralize the word. So why is Adonai pluralized differently than it normally would be for just a plural, right? Like if Mike and I were both kings, they would refer to us in Hebrew as Adonai, but just with an I. So it would be plural lords, but not spelled like this. So what does that kamatz do? That Hebrew vowel kamatz that pluralizes Adonai? Well, it's used when a word becomes a name. And so it's used to take a Hebrew word that is a word, that is a fully legitimate, fully used word, but then when they use the kamatz instead of the patach, it takes this word and it turns it into a name. And in the Hebrew syntax, it's a grammatical form called a plural of majesty. Why is this significant? Sam, why? I didn't like English in high school when I spoke the language. Why is this significant? Well, because here's a problem with some of the more modern teaching, and I, I even hesitate to say modern faith because it's not faith, but you can find a lot of religions and offshoots of Christianity now that call into question the deity of Jesus. And they say, well, the Trinity is a New Testament concept. Trinitarianism isn't found throughout Scripture. Trinity is really a New Testament idea, and that's, you know, that's how we can justify that Jesus wasn't fully God. So why is the kamat significant? Why is this transformation of a Hebrew word into Adonai significant? What is a plural of majesty? Well, a plural of majesty in the Hebrew language is when a plural ending is attached to a word or to a name, making it plural, significant. Why can't I think of this word? I can't think of the word. We're going to go with meaning. I can think of that word. Meaning, so it's a plural ending attached to a name, meaning a plurality of people, meaning a plurality of, of people. But here's the thing, the word retains singular verbs and adjectives. 
And so you have a word that is simultaneously singular and plural. One and three. You have the deity of God, the person of God in the Trinity. And this is what Abraham says when he looks up and he beholds the three men in front of him. He says, Adonai, A-I, with the kamats. He looks up and he says, okay, this is the word Lord, but this is the name Lord. And this is a plurality. This is the plurality of majesty, Adonai, in front of me. Every detail in Scripture matters. And this is beautiful because this shows Trinitarian theology throughout Scripture. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the Trinity is a New Testament concept. From the beginning, God has been God and God has been three in one. And we see this in Abraham's encounter with God, with Yahweh. Yahweh appears to him. Abraham replies, Adonai. And that word Adon that I said existed in the English language or in the Hebrew language, it had a meaning, right, in that language. And Adon in that language, it meant master or owner or ruler, okay? And it had a concept of dominion, of ownership, of control. And so this, this is a word that the people would have been familiar with as a word, and now it becomes a name to them. But this isn't just a word that meant ownership and master and ruler, and that was, you know, kind of like a dictator. No, this is, this is an owner who cares. This is a master who is invested in his property, who has taken a personal responsibility for the well-being of his property. He desires to maximize his property. All of this is packed into this word adon, this word that is transformed to become the name of the triune God. And the people would have known this. And they would have carried that significance when they heard that name, Adonai, used to reference God. And we see both Yahweh and Adon, again, not just in Genesis 18, but in Psalm 97, 5. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, Yahweh, before the Lord of all the earth. The mountains melt like wax before Yahweh, the Adon of all. Okay? So in the Old Testament, you have Lord and Lord. You have Lord is Yahweh. Lord is the proper name of God. And Lord is also his title. His divine sovereign title of Lord of all, of Adon of all. So this is the Old Testament, all right? This is, this is how we see Lord used in the Old Testament in these two ways. And so now let's come back to the New Testament. Let's come back to the original question that started all of this. Kyrios. Where does Kyrios come from? Well, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, what's known as the Septuagint, Yahweh, that tetragrammaton, was translated into Kyrios. Okay, so you have Yahweh, the name, the proper name of Lord, translated into Kyrios. But Kyrios was also a title in Greek. Kyrios was also, again, a pre-existing word in the Greek language that had the title aspect of Kyrios. So it was possible to be a Kyrios without being the Kyrios, Yahweh. And so now you have, where you used to have two words, Yahweh and Adonai, now you have Kyrios. You have the one word that Luke uses here. And this, this is where it gets fast. I mean, this has all been fascinating. But this is where it gets, it, 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 like, this is where it gets exciting. This is why I love studying, right? Because you have these two concepts. You have Yahweh and Adonai. 
You have the proper name of Lord and Adonai as ruler of all, master of all, owner of all. Luke, if you want to go to the next slide, my, my clicker's not working. Thank you. So Kyrios is both the name of God, Yahweh, but then what is Kyrios as a title? Well, the helps word concordance study describes it as properly a person. I mean, listen to these words. Listen to these deliberate words. Kyrios is a person exercising absolute ownership rights. Kyrios is he to whom a person or thing belongs about which he has the power of deciding. So in one word, you see both Yahweh and Adonai. You see Kyrios, the Lord, Jesus. And this is a word that is used throughout the New Testament. Paul alone uses it over 150 times to show who Jesus is. Luke, if you want to go to the next slide, we'll look at how Mark uses it. Mark in his gospel uses Kyrios to clearly refer to Yahweh the Father. God the Father. Mark uses Kyrios in 1.3.11.9.12.11, where it is, it is God the Father is Kyrios. Mark also uses Kyrios in situations where it could be Jesus or God the Father. You see it in 5.19.11.3, where it could be Jesus or God the Father is Kyrios. And then Jesus himself refers to Jesus, Jesus refers to himself as Kyrios in Mark 2:28, or if you want to go to the next slide, Luke 6:5. Jesus says in one of his discourses with the Pharisees, Jesus says to them, "The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath." So Mark identifies God the Father as Kyrios. Mark identifies Jesus as Kyrios. Jesus identifies himself as Kyrios. Yahweh Adonai, proper name of God, God's title as ruler, master, owner of all, Kyrios. So that early question, that very first question of, okay, why is this significant? I finally felt like I arrived at my answer after all this stuff, after diving into the Old Testament, diving. Because what happened on this day is Jesus heals a woman on the Sabbath. And let's not gloss over that. That's, that's miraculous. That's beautiful. Jesus heals a woman on the Sabbath, and the synagogue official, he wasn't, even a, he wasn't even a Pharisee. So this was when you look at the language and it says a ruler of the synagogue, an official of the synagogue. This wasn't a Pharisee. This wasn't someone who had the right to teach. This was someone who was just entrusted with the physical property of the synagogue. Someone who would have worked very closely with the Pharisees, but certainly was not a teaching authority in this culture. He just kind of oversaw, okay, are people using the synagogue appropriately? And he steps up and he says, no, Jesus is wrong. This is not allowed to happen on the Sabbath. People, let me tell you how the Sabbath is, is to be operated. Let me tell you how the Sabbath is to be used. Let me tell you how the synagogue is to work. And Scripture points out that, okay, well, it's time for the Lord to remind the people how this works. What did Jesus declare about himself? No, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Kyrios of the Sabbath. What is Kyrios? Kyrios is the one who exercises absolute ownership rights. Kyrios is the one who makes the decision. Kyrios is not looking for your input. Kyrios is not opening the matter up for discussion. Hey, weigh in on this. Help me figure. No, no, no. Kyrios, I am the owner of the Sabbath. I decide how the Sabbath is used because it is mine. And so the Lord, the Kyrios of the Sabbath, has to step in and say, no, you don't get to tell me how my property, what I own, what I am responsible for. And again, remember, this is not a word, this is not a cold, distant owner. 
This is not an emotionally detached, negligent owner. This is an owner who deeply, personally cares about that which he owns. This matters to the owner. This is who Jesus is. And Jesus is not going to allow this synagogue official to tell him how he gets to use his Sabbath. And so the question that I have to ask myself, and I hope that we're willing to ask ourselves, is do we do this to Jesus? Do we look at the curios of our life and say, well, I'm going to tell you how things are going to go. I'm going to tell you how my life needs it. I'm going to tell the owner how his property gets to be used. I've always wanted to be in a demolition derby. I really have. Like I, I, my grandparents took, to me, took me to one when I was like eight. And I was like, well, now I know what I'm doing with my life. I'm just going to be in demolition derbies. And my mom was like, no. And, uh, you know, I got a little bit older and I understood why she wasn't so keen on it. Because I was like, mom, like, okay, what if we come back when I'm 16 and I just use like the old family van? She was like, no. So I want to be in a demolition derby. We're entering the summer. It's going to be state fairs. There's going to be demolition derbies. Hands up if I can have your car. Hey, thank you, James. Right, nobody else put their hands up. Why? Because let's be honest, I bet you're thinking, well, if you want to be in a demolition derby, use your own car. Right? Use your own car. Don't use my car. Would you allow me to come to your house and say, hey, Phil, I'm here. Keys to your car. I'm going to go put it in the demolition derby. No. Thumbs down. Phil gives the, the Roman emperor a thumbs down. Why? Because that's Phil's property. I don't get to show up and tell Phil how his property that he owns is going to be used. So in my own life, have I said to Jesus, yeah, yeah, I know I'm yours. I know you're curious, but here's, here's how I want to be used. Here's how it's going to go. I'm going to tell you, just like the synagogue official told Jesus, the curios of the Sabbath. No, no, here's how you have to use the Sabbath. Here's how you have to behave. As Lord of the Sabbath, here's how you need to behave. Do I do that with my own life? Because when we study Scripture, what we see is that Jesus is not just curios of the Sabbath. Jesus is curios of everything. The Old Testament and the New Testament are abundantly clear that Jesus is God. And as such is curious of everything. John 20, 28, Thomas answered him and said, My Lord and my God. And in English, we translate it to where Thomas actually kind of comes first in that, right? He says, my Lord. But in the original Hebrew syntax, or in the original, I'm sorry, not Hebrew syntax, in the original, probably Aramaic, he's probably speaking Aramaic, but it's written in Greek. In the original syntax, Thomas actually says, Jesus, curios of me. Jesus comes first. Jesus, curios of me. Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made Jesus curios. End of discussion. This is not a back and forth. There is no room for rebuttal here. Know this for certain that God has made him curios. And Christ. He has made him Lord of all and the anointed one, the Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Acts 10, 34-36. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Declare this in Acts. Peter says, Jesus, curios of everything. 
And that word that he used for all, it wasn't like a all except. It was no. This is Jesus. This is the Kyrios of everything. This is Yahweh. This is the proper name of God, the ruler, the owner, the one exercising absolute possessional rights. This is who Jesus is. Colossians 1.16, for by him, this section in Colossians is titled the preeminence of Christ. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. And how's that end? And for him, that's right. Why? Because he's Kyrios. There's no other Kyrios. There, this isn't a title that's shared. God is Kyrios. Jesus is Kyrios. All things were created for him. For the master who exercises absolute control and the right to control. And what, again, let me reemphasize this as much as is necessary. This is not a distant master who's just trying to manipulate you and break you down and get everything from you and then be done. This is a master who cares. This word is a master, an owner, Adonai. This is, this is the Lord who cares deeply for what he possesses. This is the ruler who is invested in maximizing that which he possesses. This is who Jesus is. Jude 1.4, talking about the church, because again, one of the biggest temptations for Christians, one of the biggest temptations and problems for the church is we love to point the finger. I've been guilty of this. I've been guilty of this far more than I should be, but I love to read the convicting words of Scripture. I love to read the compelling truths, or I don't love to. My flesh likes to. The Spirit in me weeps when I do this, and I have to repent. But the flesh in me likes to read the words of Scripture and say, yeah, that sinful world needs to hear this. Yeah, those sinners around me, they need to hear this, right? The flesh in me wants to say, oh yeah, that's convicting. I hope they're paying attention. I, I wish I could put this on every news channel that you guys have all ignored Kyrios. But then Jude 1.4 comes along talking about the church, talking about the body of believers professing to be Christians. And Jude 1.4 says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And earlier in Jude, Jude, Jude says, he said, I, I'm compelled to write to you to contend for the integrity of the gospel. Why? Because the church has entertained this notion that Jesus is not the only Kyrios. People have crept in who pervert the grace of God and deny our only Kyrios. This is what Jude writes to the church. That people have crept in to the church who deny and pervert the grace of God when they say, Jesus is not the only Kyrios. Jesus is not our Kyrios. And so we have to ask ourselves, have we allowed this to happen in our own lives? Have we allowed ourselves to look at Jesus, curious of everything, and say, well, okay, but this is still sort of an advisory capacity that I'm in. I'm going to quote Pete. Pete Lovejoy has one of the greatest statements on prayer I've ever heard. He says, never pray in an advisory capacity. Are we guilty of that? 
hey, Lord, um, I don't know if you had plans, but here's what I think you should do. You know, in case you were looking for another opinion, here's, here's how I'd like to see this play out. And by like to, I, you know, really, this is what needs to happen. And if it doesn't happen that way, I'm, I'm going to doubt your lordship. Well, Sam, I would never say that. Would we? No, I would never say, would we? I, I mean, right, like my grandma. So this week, this, this, was, a, this, was, a, this was a tough week. Um, in a lot of ways, we lost Al, a beloved member of this family. And I'm going to miss, but I'm excited to see him again one day. Uh, and also in the middle of the week, Addie and I took a couple days and we drove up to say goodbye to my grandma because it looks like she's going to pass very soon here. She really wants to see our baby. She, she, wants to, she wants to see the baby and hold her. So that's our prayer, right? That would be such a joy. God, please let grandma see, see the baby. God didn't let grandma see the baby. Maybe he, he's not in control like I think he is. Maybe, maybe he doesn't care like I think he does because he, he didn't answer this prayer. This is a good prayer. What's wrong with this prayer? I want my grandma to see our baby. What, what's wrong with that prayer? God, why wouldn't you answer that? Do you, do you really care? Are you there? Are you listening? Let's be honest. Would we allow ourselves to doubt the curios of Jesus and to question the curios of Jesus? But I don't want to end there because this is, yes, this is a challenge. And yes, this is, in this case, Jesus rebukes this synagogue official, right? And he rebukes this synagogue official and he says, no, 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 you don't understand. I am the curios of the Sabbath. I tell you what gets to happen on the Sabbath, not the other way around. But this is also a beautiful encouragement. There is so much strength and joy in being reminded that Jesus is curios. And this is something, if you're here, if you're joining us online and you're a Christian, I want to remind you that you have declared this to be true. You, you know this truth. I think sometimes we just need to be reminded of this truth. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Kyrios and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, this personal relationship, yes, I confess that Jesus, you are Lord, you are my Lord. I believe this, I confess this, you will be saved. So if you're a Christian, you, you know this truth. And maybe we just need to be reminded of it at times because there's such strength in this undeniable reality that Jesus is God and as such is curious of everything. Because what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us that Jesus is the ruler who is deeply invested in us? And yes, he exercises absolute ownership authority, but it's because he loves us. Well, this means that there's no situation in your life where Jesus is not in complete control. It's impossible for you to go through a situation where Jesus is not. I keep using these definitions because I want them to stick in your mind. Because this week, anytime I've heard someone say the word Lord, or anytime I've said the word Lord, these are the definitions that are now running through my mind. We prayed down earlier this morning together before the service. If you missed it, we invite you next week to pray. But people, as they were praying, different people would say, Lord, and I'm hearing Lord, the one exercising absolute ownership authority. People prayed, Lord, we, we pray for the kids' wing. We pray for the ministry of the kids' wing, Lord. And I'm hearing Jesus, the one who is exercising absolute authority over what's going on in that kids' wing. Jesus, the God who desires that none should come to repentance. Or none, oh goodness, don't, don't listen to that part. God, the God who desires that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. There we go. Oh my gracious. 
God desires that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. That is the God who is exercising complete control over every word that is being taught to our children in the kids' wing. That's an awesome thing. Jesus Kyrios is exercising total control in every situation in your life. He is not caught off guard by any of this. He is not, oh shoot, now I've got to adjust my plans because that, I wasn't expecting that. No, Jesus is always perpetually in complete dominion of every single thing you go through. Every single decision before you, everything ahead of you that seems daunting and scary, everything that you're in the middle of that seems overwhelming and inescapable and insurmountable, Jesus is in complete authority as Kyrios of that situation. So be joyful. Be peaceful. One of the things I really think is missing the most from the American church is joy. I think if the world looked at Christians and saw genuine joy, they'd want to know why. Because this is not a joyful world. But in Jesus, in Kyrios of everything, in the Kyrios, we are promised joy. Peace that surpasses all understanding. When the world looks at us, do they see the joy of having the Kyrios as our Savior? And it also means that we need to be courageous. Because whatever God is asking you to do, however big it may seem, however scary it may seem, however unknown or unfamiliar it may seem to you, God is not asking you to enter into a situation where He is not Kyrios. So when God presents a challenge to you, when God presents a calling to you, when God opens a door to witness at your work or in your neighborhood, when God gives you these opportunities that seem to be, I have no clue what I'm doing. I don't know if I can go through that door. I don't know if I can have that conversation with my coworker. Okay, I was at my kid's soccer game and I heard a parent who I don't even really know talk about, yeah, I just lost a family member. What's the meaning of life? I, surely I can't go over there as a stranger and say, hey, let me, you know, you just asked about the meaning of life. You mind if I talk to you for him? I can't do that. That's, that's too much. No, 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 because Jesus is curious of that conversation. So be courageous in this. Let this embolden us every day that we serve the curios. This is what Jesus is remind, or this is who we are reminded that Jesus is in this passage in Luke. Jesus talked to the woman. He laid his hand on her. She came to him. A synagogue official questioned him, questioned Jesus, and the Lord replied. The curios of everything replied. Guys, this is, this is awesome. What weapon formed against us shall prosper? What are you going to do to me? I'm with the Kyrios. What's the world going to do to you? You're with the Kyrios. What situation can, this, can the devil possibly throw at you where Jesus is not the Kyrios? That doesn't make it any easier. When we suffer pain, when we suffer loss, when we suffer tragedy, it hurts. When people betray us, it hurts. When we get rejected, it hurts. Right? I'm not denying that, but what I'm saying is in that pain, in that suffering, in that rejection, I tried to witness to 47 people and all 47 people, you know, 
cursed me out and told me to go away. Okay, Jesus was curious of every single one of those 47 conversations. So pursue that 48th conversation. Jesus is calling me to this. It seems scary. That's okay. He's curious of that. He is curious of the Sabbath. He is curious of everything. And if you have confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart, he's your curios. So the question that I have to ask myself, if this literally defines, I mean, Jesus is always curios. This literally defines my relationship with Jesus. Grammatically speaking, curios defines my relationship with Jesus. So practically, do I live that out? And that's the challenge for this week. I want you to read Revelation 4 and 5. These are two beautiful chapters about the curios. I mean, these are two incredible chapters about the curios of all. So I want you to read Revelation 4 and 5. And then I just simply want you to ask yourself, if I believe and declare, let's quote Thomas, right? I know it sounds funny in English syntax, but let's quote Thomas. If I believe and declare that Jesus is curios of me, does my practical daily life reflect that? Does my daily life reflect that I am submitted to his absolute ownership authority? What do you want me to do, Jesus? I'm doing it. What do you want me to say? I'm saying it. Where do you want me to go? I'm going. What do you want me to not say? What do you want me to not do? Maybe that's the harder part, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to say it because you're curious and you get to decide what my life looks like. And then the prayer is simple. God, teach us to live in a way that shows Jesus is curious. I, I believe, I believe that God can do incredible things with this body. I've said this before, Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. I've imagined some pretty cool things happening here. God can do immeasurably more of that. Why? Because he's curious. So let's live like it. Please join me in prayer. God, oh God, we thank you for your sovereignty. Lord, curious, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that your nature is the absolute owner and ruler. We thank you that you are Yahweh. We thank you that you are the God who knows us and loves us, who has plans for us. We thank you that you give us an opportunity to join in your work. We thank you that as Kyrios, you want what's best for us. And sometimes that may be hard. Sometimes we may need to be remolded like the potter shapes the clay. Sometimes we need to be refined in the fire. And we need to have things melted away. And God, even in those situations, we thank you that you are curious. As David wrote, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. God, we thank you that when we feel like we're in the valley, you are curious. And so, Lord, it is the declaration of our hearts that we want to see you lifted up as curios of everyone. That we want the world who doesn't know you to know you as curios and to know the joy and the hope and the peace of knowing you as curios. Father, we thank you for who you are and we thank you for Jesus. And it's in Jesus' precious, holy name we pray. Amen.